With the pathogen test, we had actually found uh, fungi, molds, bacteria, protozoa, viruses, um, all sorts of other things in the blood of sick people. And today we'll unravel a little bit, um, you know, some of the case studies uh, where we were able to actually help people to get out of their misery uh, because we found the actual causation of their ailment. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today from Melbourne is Associate Professor Karen Reed. Hi, Karen. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks. So I met Karen, or I saw Karen speak at the uh, NIM conference in late 2019, and then I was fortunate enough to um, have a tour of the amazing facility. And I must say, I, I felt like a Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory as we all um, were wandering through all these little um, uh, areas through the through the facility. And one thing that really struck me was that the testing that NIM performed, and Karen's actually um, instrumental in. Um, uh, conducting these tests as the director of research at NIMS. So we're here today to talk about um, pathogen testing and some novel new tools that um, practitioners can have at their disposal for looking at um, potential pathogens. So before we dive into the tests, Karen, Karen um, just a little bit about your background. How did you land at NIMS and what's your background? I believe it's in genetics. Yeah, so um, I'm actually, as you can hear from my accent, I'm from Europe. So I grew up in Germany. I'm Austrian, though. And I studied uh, genetics and human genetics in, in, in Austria and uh, Germany. And um, I always was interested in the bio, biology and biochemistry of the human body. And somewhat I was very intrigued in being part of the Human Genome Project, which was going on around about the 2000s. And there was a professor in Adelaide who was the head of the Human Genome Project. And I really was quite keen to, to work with him. And that's how I landed in Australia. In the end, um, I felt that you know, I really wanted to do more in primary healthcare and, and doing more applied uh, research and ended up be uh, working in primary healthcare in at Adelaide Uni and Flinders Uni in South Australia. And Professor Avni Sali, who's the director and founder of uh, National Institute of Integrative Medicine in Melbourne, he was kind of following my path because I was looking at doing some clinical trials with nutrition and nutritional um, supplements and uh, looking at uh, different, uh, you know, um, health conditions. And he said, look, you know, I really would like you to start our research department here at NIM. And one of his wishes was to look into cancer cell testing and we acquired the um French test, which is based on cytology for cancer cells. And, and I will talk more about that, um, you know, at, at your upcoming conference in, in June, a uh, metagenic yes. conference. Yes. And uh, so because this uh, cancer test uh, is basically looking at what's going on in the blood, um, it captures the cancer cells, but it also captures some other, you know, rare 
entities on the filters, which are stained for microscopy. And I found, you know, that there were some other things there which needed a little bit more investigation other than cancer cells. So we added to the microscopy some genetic analysis because that, that was my background. Right. Uh, so we said, okay, when we see this, we can actually determine what it is by doing a genetic test. And since then, we've developed this, what we call our pathogen blood test, which is the combination of the microscopy from blood uh, and genetic analysis. And with the pathogen test, we had actually found uh, fungi, molds, bacteria, protozoa, viruses, um, all sorts of other things in the blood of sick people. And today we'll unravel a little bit um you know, some of the case studies uh, where we were able to actually help people to get out of their misery uh, because we found the actual causation of their ailments. And uh, in terms of uh, size, you know, I mean, fungi, for example, you know, hyphen and spores, uh, they are nicely visible because they have, you know, the same size as uh, and, and are even bigger than human immune cells. Uh, protozoa are in that uh, in that area, so you, you can nicely see those as well under the microscope. With um, bacteria, even though they're a little bit smaller, if they are in abundance, you can also see them. Uh, they they stay yeah. on the filter, so the filter has um, eight micron holes, and obviously bacteria are a bit smaller. But if you have a large number of bacteria, then some will stay on the filter. And once you have, um, basically with, with the filtration, how it works is you get rid of the red blood cells with a um, buffer, which lyses the red blood cells. So ah, okay. they, yes. they actually make all the rare cells visible. Yes. And then you also put some formaldehyde into the mix, which basically um, stay, uh, um, um, binds the uh the cells to the filter right. and um, and also kills them i mean if if you know if you've got some infectious agents in your blood i mean they won't be alive when we look at them anymore and then you stain it and uh with viruses for example they are too small to be seen uh with the naked eye but what we can do is we add a technique which is called um immunocytochemistry to it so you use antibodies which bind to the uh receptors or proteins of the virus or the cells mm -hmm. and then you can put a dye on it and therefore also make it visible so with the pathogen screen, we can actually look at the plethora of different pathogens. So viruses are included, and um, we'll talk probably a bit later, you know, why, why that's so important. Fascinating. So just to recap, you take a blood sample. Um, it basically has the red blood cells removed. Um, the, the white blood cells remain. Is that correct? Yes, but uh, uh, white blood cells are still in there. And yep. if somebody has, you know, a chronic infection, for example, you will find a lot more immune cells in there. So you will see inflammation and you can distinguish between 
neutrophils and monocytes and eosinophils and you can also see mast cells i mean it's 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 a normal blood smear just getting rid of all the red blood cells which usually make it make other things invisible because there are too many of them sure and then you can um detect often directly protozoa um parasites maybe bacteria Mm -hmm. and you can somehow chemically tag and then illuminate the presence of viruses. That's correct. Yeah, and fungi is a really important. Fungi, we, yeah. We can, yeah, so so because they actually play a very uh, important role in in chronic disease. Um, I mean, mold exposure you can go get into the blood through your lungs, but also through leaky gut. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why sometimes we might see a lot of inflammation and maybe also some bacteria because of leaky gut in the blood. So, um, but I mean, there's other blood-borne bacteria we, we, we're going to talk about later. Yeah, sure. And there was something else. Yeah, you said parasites. So it is correct that even, you know, sometimes worms um, can, you know, through the leaky gut, potentially get into or worm fragments can get into the blood and we have had i think out of the 2200 patients we've um, investigated to date with this technique we've probably had two where we actually found worm eggs in the blood and um, also worm fragments Uh, the majority is uh, usually mold what we find so probably about 80% of patients have some sort of fungal systemic infection. And sometimes it can be a non-pathogenic, uh, say, for example, with um, candida. You know, if you've got leaky gut and you've got uh, a bit of candida infection, it might come into the blood. Or, you know, you've got um, some uh, yeast which lives on the skin. Uh, Malazetia, for example, you know, which causes dendruff. Uh, you can find that because of leaky gut potentially in the blood. So that doesn't necessarily cause right. disease in itself. It's just it's not healthy to have all these floaties around. But I think the leaky gut is probably the the the, the target. You know, so you you need to get rid of that. But sometimes um, we have cases where you got, you know, systemic aspergillus infection, for example, or uh, some other, you know, um, really nasty pathogens. And it is quite useful to know what they are because then you can use a particular antifungal medicine to help the body get rid of those uh, particular fungi. So well, how we do that is when we do the genetic analysis with the fungi, we use a pun fungal assay that's called. So we basically use uh, the genetic material which is specific for any sort of fungi. And then we sequence or let it sequence um, what's in between. And when you then uh, it's called blasting. You know, when you compare that to sequences on the internet, mm-hmm. so it's a particular program you need to u- use for that, you can actually determine, oh, it's Aspergillus or it's Malazitia or it's Penicillium or it is Saganomella or it is. Uh, there's about hundreds um, or 1,200 um, patho- pathogenic fungi out there. Uh, not all of them 
unnecessarily going into the blood, but uh, knowing what it is helps you with the treatment because yes. some fungi are not susceptible to certain treatments. And we had, for example, there's a nasty yeast uh, called Myrazima guillomondi, uh, which doesn't react to the normal antifungals you can get over the counter, basically uh, Sporonox or, or they are called azoles. So it basically thrives on that. So when you get that, you really need to use a different antifungal agent to get rid of it, like amphotericin B, which you can get nasally, or caspofungin. Uh, and um, there's lots and lots of literature out there um, where tests have been done with what uh, antifungus is best uh, to use for what uh for what uh, infection and and so it makes sense for us not just to say oh you've got a fungal infection but yeah. to actually know what it is because sometimes it can be life-saving uh, and sometimes it can give you um, the allowance to heal your leaky gut first before you take any antifungals you know because with candida saccharomyces boulardii that that prebiotic yeast would help a lot, you know, getting rid of any yeasts in your gut. And um, so you don't really need to use a heavy antifungal, which might be taxing on the liver or kidney. Right. But if you've got aspergillus or, you know, the sagnomella case, which we can talk about, um, I mean, you do need to help, you know, with antifungals to get rid of it. The body itself is not, not going to make it, you know, um, as easily. Sure. So just to, for my clarity, so you with the cytology and the visual identification, the first phase where you're, you're looking in the microscope and you identify the organism, say you identify a fungal overgrowth or the presence of fungus, is that when you'll collect the genetic material from the sample and then compare it against all the, the fungus online or in, the, in a library? That's to find correct. The match. Yes. Yep. So, so, so what we do is, so we, we take a 10 milliliter blood sample and uh, or 20 milliliters, so two times 10 milliliters. And the one 10 milliliters goes through the microscope and then oh, okay. we'll see what's going on around in the blood. Then we use a fresh tube, which hasn't been exposed to any air and, yes. and open it um, under very strict sterile conditions. And that's really important also for what we're going to talk about later, about bacteria and so on. Yes. Um, so so it will, under sterile conditions, we take out the DNA and use a mechanical way of extracting the DNA. So uh, it's, you know, you, you can do it any, any shape or form, but we found with fungi in particular, it's very good to use um, a mechanical way. So it's called bead beating. And, um, I mean, that, that's something, it's an established technique, you know, done all over the labs in, in, in the world. So we get the DNA out and then um, we do a PCR DNA analysis with uh, primers, which are specific for fungi, but conserved enough that they bind on all the 1,200 pathogenic fungi and all the, the other ones which are around there. And then... Um, the PCR product, which is usually 250 base pairs long, um, we use that to get it sequenced. And then that sequenced, we compare to what's out there in, in 
you know, on, on this program. So sure. that, that, that was basically what I did during my PhD and postdoc. So for, for me, it was a logical, you know, ex, expansion of saying, oh, what is this? Okay, let's use genetics to identify what it is. So, so you need a little bit of insight and knowledge how to do it, but it's something which is done everywhere around the world. It's just the way how you identify uh, bacteria as well as fungi as well as anything else, you know, so that, that's, that's how it works. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, just a couple more questions on the, the visual identification. Um, often in functional medicine, when there's a discussion around um, chronic infection, there's um, conversations around the idea that the, the bug's gone stealth and changes its forms, particularly like bacteria can go into cysts and L forms and hide in biofilms. Can your visualizations see any of this sort of quote-unquote stealthiness of an infection? Yes, definitely. So we can see, uh, for example, I mean, you, you, you're talking about potentially Lyme borreliosis. Um, so Borrelia, the Borrelia bacteria, they can change from spirochetes to cysts and into biofilm. And uh, we have seen this all in our gold standard case. So we saw at a particular phase of the cycle, we saw the spirochetes. Um, then we saw the cysts and we also saw biofilm. And uh, that actually helped a lot with the treatment in the end because depending on what form they're in, um, they're more easy or more difficult to, to tackle. So we can certainly see that. We can see also with the uh, fungi, we can see hyphen and spores. I mean, obviously, because they're quite big, yeah. um, the mechanical, you know, filtration will potentially distort them a little or just, you know, uh, so you you won't have uh, a, as beautiful of a picture as you can get if you if you um, put it on a, on, a, on, a, on a slide directly with the long hyphen. But uh, you can certainly distinguish between that. And what's also interesting there is, there's a group of um, creatures in between bacteria and fungi uh, called filamentous bacteria. So they are actually forming hyphen. But uh, what's interesting with those is they always grow round, you know, so like bacteria do, you know, they start in the middle and then they go bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's how you can distinguish between, you know, filamentous bacteria and, um, and fungi. Because obviously for filamentous bacteria, you need antibiotics. Mm -hmm. for, anti, for the fungi, you need antifungals. So, I mean, it's quite different. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. And also with the white blood cells, obviously they're sort of killed and stained, but um, we're not, you're not really using it to, to do a count, but can you sort of see the phenotype, if you want to call it that, of the white blood cells to show like acute infection or viral infection? Is there any information yeah. that is gathered from the, the white blood cell investigation? Yeah, very interesting question, Nathan. Uh, have you done microscopy or hematology before? Oh, a little bit of the live blood analysis. That yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's because you can. Um, so you can distinguish between monocytes, neutrophils and eosinophils. You can also see whether, you know, the immune cells look a little bit sick. Um, and that's basically or exhausted or whatever you want to call it. So sometimes they have vacuoles then in the cytoplasm. 
And uh, so in terms of, you know, counts, uh, while it can't be a full count because some of the white blood cells might go through the filter holes because they are around about right. 8 microns. But I mean, again, you know, it's a numbers game. So if you have an inflammatory condition, you will potentially see more of those inflammatory cells. So you can say we always report on, you know, um, there's an increased number of um, inflammatory cells around. And also, if you've got eosinophils there, then, you know, it's more an allergic type of reaction. And it often comes together with some, some sort of um, inf infective agents or, you know, it can be sometimes can be food allergy. But uh, mast cells, you can see, you know, again, you know, allergic type of reaction. And, um, and with the viruses, while you can't see the virus by itself because it's too small for just the light microscopy, uh, you can gauge kind of from the general picture. So if you've got a lot of immune cells and they're all looking very worn and have a lot of holes in the, in the cytoplasm, then it's more likely that you might find a um, viral infection. And we can do then an additional testing, which is immunocytochemistry, where we use, you know, the antibodies for, for example, Epstein-Barr virus right. or simplex and bind that to the cells. And, and, and then if we get a positive stain, you can basically say that um, the, the viral infection is active and they are currently um, replicating because with viruses, you know, doing a, doing a genetic analysis is not very useful because like herpes or Epstein-Barr, they stay in your system. So you will always get, if you've been infected yeah. once, you always get a positive result. So with the immunocytochemistry, though, you will only stay in cells where you have the virus particles in it. And then you can say, well, this cell is infected by that virus. And, and therefore, you know, you can, you can relate it to an active flare-up, for example, of Epstein-Barr, which plays a major role in, you know, chronic fatigue and chronic fatigue syndrome. And in the comparison to, you know, why do I have, you know, these symptoms? And interestingly enough, um, with the... We talked about borreliosis before and Lyme disease. Um, the current testing is based on serology, which is basically looking at antibodies in the in in the blood. And um, the body can only do so many antibodies, so you will get some overlaps there. And with right. viral infections, particularly Epstein-Barr virus, which can give you mononucleosis, which can give you Guillain-Barré syndrome which, uh, you know, can really be quite nasty for people, um, that that will stay in your system and it can give you the same antibody as um, a Lyme disease does. Therefore, when you do serology and you've got a mononucleosis or, you know, Epstein-Barr virus flare-up, you will get uh, basically uh, a picture of um, the antibody, Western blot or ELISA's, of, of Borrelia, but it is not Borrelia. It wow. is the viral infection. So we can basically look at, you know, and we can see already if there is a lot of immune cells around, you don't see any bacteria, um, the immune cells look very sick, and the patient has had, you know, Epstein-Barr in the past. 
I mean, it's very useful to do a tighter analysis. It's very possible to do that, as well as doing our immunocytochemistry to actually look at the cells we find and see whether they stain positive with that particular um, antibody or the marker. And we have had cases from the US, which we analyzed, um, where we could find, you know, chronic fatigue, Lyme-like symptoms, Lyme-like um you know, uh, Western blots and ELISA test results. Yes. And we found positive Epstein-Barr virus flare-up. And, I mean, obviously, you treat that completely differently than if you had an acute Lyme uh, infection. Because one is a bacterium, you use antibacterial antibiotics, and that also will kill your good bacteria in the gut will make you sicker if you have a virus infection. Because for your virus infection to get rid of that, you basically need to strengthen your immune system. You have to help your immune system to get rid of the virus because there's not really anything you can do to inactivate the virus any other way. I mean, there's antivirals around, but they're long-term not very healthy because they basically stall DNA synthesis and obviously... If you do that for a long period of time, you won't make any of your own right. cells. Yes, exactly. And 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 that's one of the reasons why you know people can't be on long-term antivirals or they get very sick. If you know you you have because the the body won't make any immune cells, it won't make any new cells. You know you're basically aging. Yes. You know, and that's and then so that's mm. why the first line of treatment for and a systemic viral infection should be support of the immune system. And there's several ways of doing that. And uh, it is definitely not taking antibiotics because you're doing the opposite. So usually those people with, um, you know, Epstein-Barr virus flare-up or herpes simplex flare-up, I mean, there's there's things like varicella zoster, for example, which you um, you get when you have chickenpox. It can stay in your system, give you shingles uh, when you when it's a flare-up as an adult. And the shingles don't have to be uh, visible. It can, you can have internal shingles, so you can have people with pain inside and uh, and, and and really bad chronic fatigue. And um, and they actually have uh, varicella zoster, which is also herpes zoster, uh, flare-up. So we have proven that in one case where um, we had, you know, a shingles flare-up, and we can we could find with this technique of immunocytochemistry, we could find a positive active herpes flare-up in in that person. So it was not. Uh, a bacterium. It was not a fungus. It was not uh, anything else, uh, but uh, um, a, a viral reactivation of a virus, which you know you inquire and it stays in your body. And if you if you compromise the immune system, it will have a party. It will it will be you know even getting worse. And that's. I think one of the reasons why we see, you know, with some misdiagnosis, people not getting better but getting worse because they're actually not treated the right way. Mm. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm thrilled that it can 
look at the immune system and, and almost differentiate when to go for antimicrobials versus um, boosting or stimulating the immune system to allow the immune system to have its own, obviously, antimicrobial response. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, um, you've, you shared a bunch of case studies with me and um, we might go through a couple of those because some of those are really um, informative on how yeah, mm -hmm. useful this, this um, test can be. So let's start with um, the amazing case of the juvenile arthritis that um, uh, was presented or the, the blood was presented to you, I suppose, um, and you've published this recently in a, a journal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and we, we can share, um, you know, the, the link to, to, the, yeah. to, to, to the journal. So, so basically what happened was that we had uh, quite a number of years ago now, I think it's about three years ago, we, we had a case presented um, of a very unwell uh, young girl, nine years at that time, who uh, was in a wheelchair, uh, very malnourished, uh, really looking, you know, to die very soon because she was in such a bad state. And she had a lot of pain in, um, in joints and therefore was treated by a rheumatoid arthritis specialist. For three years, she was on heavy chemotherapy and juvenile arthritis um, treatments, which is, you know, if, if it is correctly diagnosed, the way to go. But she was getting worse rather than better. And I gave a presentation on our pathogen test and um, the doctors in the room, so the, doc, the girl's doctors in the room said, look, you know, we have nothing to lose. Would you mind having a look at her, at her blood? And uh, through our pathogen test, we found that she had a fungal infection. And we found from the sequencing that this was a very rare fungus, soil-dwelling fungus, which um, can give malnutrition and, um, you know, uh, joint problems. And uh, we had a 100% sequence identity to this fungus. So there was no doubt that this was the cause for her illness. So she really needed to get off the immunosuppressants because that is what rheumatoid arthritis treatment mm. is and uh, get her immune system to get rid of the fungus. And if we want to fast forward, uh, we were successful. So we saved her life. She has been able to, you know, uh, get out of the wheelchair. She's uh, thriving and growing in good spirits and gaining weight and, um, basically um, overcome the, her, her really de debilitating illness. And unfortunately, the rheumatoid specialist uh, didn't want to believe in our results. And, uh, and so he really wanted to keep treating her with the chemotherapies. And in the end, uh, they, the, the family had to leave the country Wow. To be able to, um, with with the doctors who you know asked us to help with the testing, um, to 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 get her, you have to wean her off the immunosuppressants. So you can't do that. Cortisol and so on was in there. You can't do that overnight. You know, so you have to do that over a period of time of three to six months, especially if she's had it for three years. So you have to do that in, in a slow manner to to really help the body and so she had to leave australia to be able to do this and i'm just so thrilled that i mean we, we were able with this to to actually identify the true cause for her 
illness. And um, the question is, with juvenile arthritis, there's a lot of um, unknown causes out there. And so the, the big question mark is, you know, would our test potentially help, you know, find some of the causations? And if you have a causation like an infectious agent, you can treat it. You don't have to suppress the immune reaction to the um, infectious agent. And, and so, so I'm, I'm hopeful that at some point in time, uh, this can be picked up uh, and, 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 and considered because it doesn't mean that it, we will find things in all juvenile arthritis cases. Yes. But in this case, it, it was also quite a reasonable etiology, and I described that in the paper, um, so how she actually ended up with this fungus. And um, so, but the bottom line is that when we when we looked at the blood, we saw you know fungal elements, and then with with that additional genetic analysis and sequencing, we got this you know match, and there were there was literature on it, and it, it described at least in animals that you know it, it it's causing malnutrition and and, um, you know, uh, joint problems. And, and that was exactly what she had. And so we followed her up since. And um, luckily, she's gotten rid of her infection. And as I said, you know, I mean, the main thing is she's, she's thriving and um, getting back to, you know, what you should do as a 12 year old or 13 year old she is now. And, um, uh, the only problem is because she was three years uh, confined, you know, in a wheelchair. And so, I mean, you will have, you know, some long-term uh, physical consequences. So she she will always have a little bit of a funny walk and be, be right. a bit weaker and so on, you know, because uh, for three years, you know, she was basically um, spastic, you know, in a wheelchair. Yes, Wow, what a, what a story, mm. amazing. Uh, I've got a couple mm. other cases with a similar theme of, I suppose, a uh, misdiagnosis uh, pertaining to um, uh, cancer and melanomas and other skin mm -hmm. um, lesions, which um, mm -hmm. is a, another podcast in itself where hopefully we'll catch up on is about your, your circulating tumor cells. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, describe some of the, the findings you've had with people with, like, skin lesions and... Mm -hmm. um, your test actually identifying uh, unsuspecting pathogen. Yeah, so exactly. So sometimes, you know, people come to us because they know uh, or they're interested in, in the potential cancer. And, and we had a few cases where we didn't find any cancer cells, but we found some other unusual things. And when you mention melanoma, there is a particular fungus called madurella, which can cause melanoma-like lesions. And we had two cases where we actually found this fungus and the patients had these lesions, which were diagnosed as melanoma. And um, the, the advice was, uh, well, have chemotherapy or, you know, have this removed and, uh, you know, just wait and see, you know. And, and so with one case, we had a lesion behind the ear uh, one year, but he was feeling other, rather otherwise quite well. And then the doctor advised, okay, let's wait and see what happens, and which is 
usually not a good idea when you have when you really have melanoma. But in this case, the patient was well, but developed this lesion on the on the leg, um, on the foot, and it was so extensive that they had to cut it off, and there was a lot of pain, a lot of healing problems, and so on. And uh, in the end, you know, when we did when we did the the blood tests and didn't find any cancer cells, but we found a lot of fungus, sequenced, found out that it's Madarella. Uh, the, the patient potentially could have been saved to have the foot lesion with antifungals, you know, to get rid of the actual cause, which gives you the, the melanoma-like lesions. And it's been described in the literature, so we're not the only, not the first right. ones. It's been described, you know, it's basically said, um, a fungal infection can, uh, mucetoma, sometimes it's called, uh, is mimicking cancer. And the other cancer, skin lesion you, you are mentioning uh, or, or um, uh, referring to is squamous cell carcinoma. So that also gives you, you know, a funny looking uh, lesion on the skin. And uh, in, in a case we had, uh, the patient wasn't getting better with um, chemotherapy. And um, so we did our blood test. Uh, there were no CDCs or circulating tumor cells, but um, filamentous bacteria, which can cause these skin lesions. So this particular patient would have been fine with potentially antibiotics from the outside and inside. So with an antibiotic wow. cream plus, you know, antibiotics potentially from the inside uh, rather than chemotherapy. So these are the... The, the real, you know, misdiagnosed cancer cases. But then we also had some interesting um, cases where, you know, someone had a liver lesion, was um, fearing to have uh, liver cancer. And in the end, we found um, the protozoa giardia, which uh, can hide in the bile and liver uh, ducts. And we found that in the blood, and uh, giardia can be treated again, you know, quite, quite, uh, if you know what it is, you, you can give the right medication. So there was liver. And then we had a leg lesion at one who also thought he got uh, some sort of bone cancer or, um, you know, some types of skin cancer. And we found a protozoa, which um, can cause these kind of lesions, um, which he gotten through a dodgy water supply. Um, so spirotuconympha. So with those protozoa, they are very, they're quite large and yes. um, they're actually quite nice to look at under the microscope. <laughs> yeah, um, they're filaments and or, or are differently stained. So they're reasonably easy to identify visually. But we also had two cases um, of Balantidium coli, which are also very easy to identify visually. But uh, we actually confirmed it then with genetics, so with right. the specific that it was indeed Valentinium coli in, in cases where we had chronic fatigue and, um, you know, some tooth loss and things like that, um, that, you know, in, in fact, they had an infection, uh, which could be treated if you know what it is. Yeah, um, perhaps we can share the um, poster and our links as well because, the, yeah, the visuals are amazing, um, the spectacular, some of these um, microorganisms. Um, mm -hmm. So I might leave the, the maybe the most controversial to last now is um, your investigation into people reporting um, Lyme-like illness in Australia. So 
I'll just give a sort of a quick lay of the land. It's um, it's fortunately become more recognised, and there was a, a Senate inquiry in 2016 um, because of the, the lack of perhaps recognition that um, very sick patients who attribute their symptoms to a sick bot, uh, tick bite um, were getting. Um, and obviously, it's a, it's a slow process, but the the government has recognised that these people are sick. There's been a lot of controversy around testing, um, whether it's actually mm-hmm. really a Bergdorferi. In Australia, the, the sort of the general consensus is that um, it's probably not Borrelia burgdorferi, which maybe in functional medicine there's criticisms about the two-tier testing and um, maybe using other types of PCR, but then there's counter-criticisms that those mm-hmm. PCR tests maybe over-amplify or give false positives as well. So it's pretty controversial, but I think um, no mm-hmm. one's doubting that people are, are very, very ill. Some people are very, unfortunately, very, very ill from tick bites. Um, but there is this, you know, ongoing debate whether it's Borrelia or a different species of Borrelia in Australia. Mm-hmm. So you, you've run, um, mm-hmm. I suppose, with your test, it's a sort of a broad spectrum, almost agnostic test, where it's just looking for what's in the blood rather than initially sort of just looking for antibodies to Borrelia. So mm-hmm. maybe it's a bit more impartial. So can you um, yeah, describe what you've you've found with your testing? Yeah, yeah. So that, that it's ex- exactly right that I mean, there's different types of tests available, and um, I always you called it microscopy. It's a bit like you're taking a photo of the inside, and then and then you're looking at you know you're trying to analyze and trying to interpret what you see, but it's it's very um, neutral. You know, you basically you, you you take a you take a shot and you have a look uh, rather than assuming. What you're looking for, you're going to find. And so the problem with the antibody testing, and we have talked about that a little bit at the start with the viruses, is the body can only make so many antibodies. And there are a lot of cross-reactions, and they have been described in the literature. So you can have certain bands, you know, when you do Western blot and ELISA and so on. So it's basically just looking at the protein your body is making uh, to fight an infection. And the body is pretty clever, but it can't really do thousands and thousands of different things. So sometimes things will overlap. And when you have an infection, whether it's, you know, a viral infection or, you know, fungal infection, there are a few overlaps with um, the antibodies produced through a Borrelia infection. So when you look at a Western blot um, printout, you know that the person has had an infection, but you can't say with 100% certainty that it is Borrelia. You can just say it is something which is causing, you know, um, the, 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 the symptoms. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually thinking the antibodies, you know, will signal to the body what to do and how to feel. And because they are so similar with, you know, Epstein-Barr virus, for example, and um the Borrelia, that it mimics the same symptoms. So that's why we often talk about Lyme-like illness because it has the same symptoms and there's no doubt, but it is not caused by bacterium. So the thing is in, in Europe, and I'm from Europe, and I know there's Lyme and Borrelia endemic there, um, and in the US, uh, there are definitely uh, you know ticks which have um, bacteria which can cause Lyme-like um, or Lyme disease. Here in Australia, it hasn't been proven, as you 
alerted to as well. We've got ticks here. We've got ticks which are infected with something, but it is not Borrelia. And whether it's Borrelia acephaly or, uh, or Burgdorferi or whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, the, the, the testing, if you, if you look at the bacteria themselves, um, you know, would be the same. It doesn't matter what kind of Borrelia they are. Um, so, but you need bacteria for that to, to be able to, to do a PCR genetic analysis. So what we do is, as I described beforehand, we use the blood on the sterile conditions and we extract the DNA out of the blood. And we've been able to, in a gold standard case who was infected in France, um, we, we were able to see and extract the Borrelia DNA from the blood directly. So that means there's no potential contamination from the outside possible. And then we used a specific Borrelia-specific PCR to say they are really Borrelia bacteria and they're not some other bacteria because just looking at bacteria, I mean, you can see there's spirochetes, but that's about it. You can't necessarily see what they are. So, so in this gold standard case, we were able to see and amplify the Borrelia. So there, there are other groups in Australia who use PCR DNA analysis, but they're not taking the DNA out of, or extracting the DNA out of the blood directly as we do. They do cell culture. So they basically, um, you know, grow the Borrelia uh, bacteria in cell culture before testing. And the problem there is for PCR, you only need one molecule to get a positive. And if you've been growing Borrelia in the lab, I mean, it is very hard to avoid if you haven't got a high security right. uh, setup uh, to to actually get some sort of contamination on something. And it is, you know, it it it's, it it can't be ruled out that you know some of those positive PCRs are because of a contamination from the setup. Of, of the whole thing, you know, so the PCR itself is positive, but we don't know, is it really from the patient or is it maybe from something from the equipment or from, you know, the, yeah, the environment. Yeah. So, so in, in what we do here, because we, we, we basically, we just open the tube where, you know, the blood is in there under sterile conditions with UV light and, and so on and so on. So we can't, we can't have any outside Borrelia coming in. And, um, and, and, and so in this gold standard case, we were able to identify it's indeed Borrelia. And because it was in this case Borrelia, we were able to um, tackle it and, and treat the patient so he's no longer sick. So what, what was really interesting in, in this case was that we could see the biofilm, which was um, built by these um, Borrelia bacteria at some stage. And um, it's been described in literature that stevia can break up the biofilm. So the patient took um, the stevia as well as antibiotics. And that way um, we were able to, you know, get rid of the bacteria because the Borrelia are quite clever in hiding in tissues and going in and out and changing forms and this and that. But because when we saw, you know, through our blood tests, oh, there's a biofilm there, 
it was the time to 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 do the stevia plus um, antibiotic treatment, and he's been healed for the last three years. So, um, so he's he's um, you know uh, our gold standard Borrelia case. All the other cases we've tested um, had other infections. So we haven't seen so other cases with Lyme-like symptoms. So we haven't seen um, any more Borrelia cases uh, in our lab. Um, so we could show, though, that um, probably about 10% had a viral flare-up, most of the time Epstein-Barr virus. Right. And 80% uh, of those people with Lyme-like symptoms had mold. And there's all sorts of mold. I mean... I, I could tell you 1,200 different pathogenic species, but you don't want to hear them. <laughs> but uh, we can identify them. And uh, it's very clear, very clear if it's a bacterial or a fungal or a viral infection. And so with, with this blood test we, we're doing here, which is microscopies to start with, we, we got a bit of an, a guide what to do next. So... We don't do just the PCR analysis because, I mean, then you, you have the, the potential, you know, contamination issue again. If you, because if you handled, you know, the positive control a thousand times, you know, you might get molecules right. somewhere yeah. <laughs> onto yeah, your equipment. So, so we only do that if we see bacteria or if we don't find anything else and, um, and, 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 and what we found is uh, in a couple of cases at, when we first started, we could identify rickettsia. Um, so, so we got PCR for that as well. So as we saw bacteria and um, uh, rickettsia, but not uh, anyone who's been bitten by a tick in Australia. Um, we didn't find Borrelia. Sure. So, yeah, just to recap, you've done over 700 of these tests on patients with like self-reported or referred um, Lyme-like illness yeah. and the bulk of them have been, like 80% have been um, some sort of mould infection mm -hmm. and then a, a significant portion after that is viral infection. Um, just with the mould, that's not, you can't look for or detect like the, the chronic inflammatory response syndrome like from the water-damaged buildings. Can you yeah, sort of... Um, yeah. I mean, we, 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 we can see, um, and I actually wanted to, to um, tell you about uh, an, another interesting case. So we, we can see if there's chronic inflammation at the time of the blood test, because then you see a lot more immune cells, a lot of eosinophils, a lot, you know, of uh, inflammation in the blood. And, uh, and the case I'm thinking about is it was somebody who was allergic to a medication he was taking. And, um, and that caused chronic um, inflammatory syndrome and therefore right. chronic fatigue. Because, I mean, if you have inflammation all over the blood, body and, it, you know, it's, it will have, it will cause some symptoms. So in a sense, you know, in some mold cases, we also see a lot of inflammation in other mold cases, it's not so much. Depends probably a little bit on the immune system and the patients, um, you know, what they've done in, in the meantime. Uh, but you, you can definitely see if there is, you know, a lot of 
inflammation going on, you can see that. Sure. Okay. Um, I'm conscious of time, so I'll just wrap up. We haven't really described what does the report look like. So it'll identify, it'll state the the pathogen mm-hmm. potentially. Um, does it hint at like the immune dysfunction? Does it ever give like suggestions of therapeutic direction? Yeah. So basically, what what we do is because it's um, at the same time a CDC test, so cancer cell tests, we always report on both. So we do the pathogen screen first. So only if we find, you know, something like fungal elements, then we suggest to do the PCR DNA analysis of that. So the pathogen um, screen and CDC test is one. We always report on both or what, what, what we find. Um, and sometimes also if somebody's really, you know, chronically fatigued and so we find a lot of CDCs, you know, we... Um, refer them to a doctor who can help them, you know, tackle that area. So sometimes it is, you know, I've got Lyme disease, but it's actually, you know, an underlying cancer um, potential. And uh, so that this test can, can show that. And, and that's, that's, that's what we do to start with. And only if we find fungal elements and a lot of them, and there's not much else. So that's the main thing there then we suggest to do the PCR DNA analysis. And and the full report then would report on, you know, what the sequencing gave. And then I always look at antifungals. You know, if you find a particular one, I always give, um, you know, references and um, susceptibility. So which of the antifungals are best to use in that particular case or if you have, you know, a lot of candida or malazitia. Um, to consider, you know, um, treating leaky gut and, um, and uh, you know, having some prebiotic yeast instead of the antifungals. Sure. Um, and so how does a practitioner go about accessing a test like this? Yeah, so at the moment, uh, it's, it's probably best to give us a ring to get a test request form because that's not uh, online at this stage, but okay. yep. um, the the test request form uh, can you know you, you can tick what the the main um, interests are and uh, the pathogen screen and um, CTC test that costs eight hundred fifty dollars. We can also do um, this interstate. So if somebody needs to can't come to Melbourne to have the blood taken we can send a test kit and um, they have special tubes in it and we organize the courier and uh, it works really well within Australia. Um, so that that's then extra shipping. Um, and the, the PCR, the genetic analysis, if we were to go ahead with that, we charge $250. Okay. Beautiful. Um, so what's your vision and hopes for this test? I know you're trying to get some more cases published, aren't you? And mm-hmm. I think there's a patent pending on this one. Yes, so we do have the patents. Um, so we, we've got a patent as uh, it's an innovative uh, innovation patent. So for the combination of the microscopy plus genetic analysis. So the microscopy itself has been, you know, around and the genetic analysis has been around. So that's that's in itself not new, but sure. uh, the combination of it and what you can do with it, um, that's, that's what we got the innovation patent for. Uh, yes, I do. I would like to publish a few more case studies and, um, and also 
you know, through, you know, your seminar, for example, and, and, and this podcast, hopefully more people can ask questions and, and say, oh, look, you know, would that be useful for me? I mean, what, what we found is really, I mean, if somebody has been sick for a while and uh, they can't get to the bottom, it, this just makes sense because you, you have a look and the blood will tell you what's going on. So it will tell you, oh, there's not enough of this or there's too much of this or, you know, there's inflammation or there's something else which shouldn't be there. It, it will tell you that. So you you can then use that information to, you know, go go another direction and and, and, and search more. And I mean I'm I'm personally fascinated by all the uh, cases we we were able to solve and uh, and people have been you know sick for a long period of time and you know, we, we were able to help them. So so I, I wish that more people have access to this just by knowing that this exists because at the moment I do think we're the only ones in the world doing this, um, but it would be nice if other labs would do this as well. But it's quite time-consuming and yeah, um, needs a lot of brains, I guess. So, so the question is, you know, but I mean, it, it would be repeatable. I mean, anybody could do exactly the same what we do. Um, it would be, you know, it, it could be standardized. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I was wondering. Well, I'm glad that we've got one to start with, and it sounds like we've got some um, big brains behind it here. So I really appreciate your time, and uh, yeah, I uh, just want to yeah reinforce that I'm I'm thrilled that you're getting some answers for, for some patients who are really really sick and mm-hmm. um, maybe are unsure or they've been sort of maybe flogging a, a dead horse in a sense, thinking it's one thing and then yeah. having these insights or even probably allaying some fears, um, you know, with like the, the circulating tumour cells that it's mm-hmm. maybe not cancerous cells and it's a, a bacteria. And, you know, mm-hmm. we'll get to the um, circulating tumour cells as well. There's a it's, um, you know, great, great advantage there on early detection, which, yeah, if you come to our Congress um, in a few months in June in Brisbane, you'll hear all um, Karen explain in detail about the circulating tumour cells. So, Karen, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, yes, yeah, we might have to touch base again to, to talk about your um, circulating tumor cells. Yes, now we, we can certainly also follow up with a podcast, you know, um, after the conference. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to that. And uh, any questions, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to, uh, you know, help people out. So, I mean, the main thing is really that one knows that this exists because, it's uh, it's reasonably new. We've been doing this since 2015, and um, and yeah, and we're, we're we're the only ones at the moment doing it this way. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, something for practitioners to keep in mind to um, you know mm-hmm. invest the time in to really get the answers. So thanks again, Karen. Yeah. Thank you as well. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up-to-date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.